everyone, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of our church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Pentecost has come. Christ is risen, is ascended, and is reigning. And now, in the kindness of God, the Spirit has been poured out onto all believers. Just as at the beginning of the world, the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep, and from the formless and void was brought forth a new creation, on Pentecost, the Spirit once again hovers over His lost children and recreates them into living sacrifices fitted with tongues of fire from heaven. On Pentecost, we celebrate an unraveling of the curse of Babel. Tongues in Christ are now united in love and truth instead of divided and confused. On this day, we celebrate that when the Spirit comes, people are changed, lives are renewed, and the gospel marches on in victory. On the day of Pentecost, that great vision of hope that came to Moses in the wilderness became not just a hope only, but now a reality. What was his vision, and what was his hope, and how was it fulfilled? That is what we will find out together today as we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on this glorious day of Pentecost. I'm so glad to be back with you on this day of Pentecost and the celebration therein. We're going to start things off with our biblical portion of the podcast. There are three major readings for Pentecost. One is from, of course, Acts chapter 2, where we learn about the Pentecost story. However, there is an Old Testament reading as well from Numbers 11, as well as a three-verse section from the Gospel of John. Altogether, it's Numbers 11, Acts 2, and John 7. Those are the three passages. So in Acts chapter 2, we read the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. The believers are together with one accord in Jerusalem during the most holy week of the Jewish calendar. If you remember, just nine days earlier, Jesus had left these believers, and he said, go back to Jerusalem until I send the Spirit. So the believers have gone back into Jerusalem, and they are now in Jerusalem during the most holy week of the Jewish calendar. And Jerusalem is filled with people from all over the known world. So all of the, all of the believers are together in a room, and all of a sudden there is a mighty wind. This wind, however, isn't whistling through the forest or the trees or even the eaves of the house. Oh no, this wind is inside the house. And what's more, 
coming with this tremendous wind comes fire. You have fire in the house. You have wind in the house. This fire is descending on and resting on each of the heads of the believers, and they are each filled with the Holy Ghost. Then something amazing happens. They all begin to speak in a variety of real languages, which, not by accident, were the same languages spoken by the multitudes that had come from all over the region to Jerusalem. So God in his providence told the believers to wait in Jerusalem, brought all of these people from all over the known world into Jerusalem, and at that time poured out his spirit on his believers, and they began speaking in these real languages, these real different tongues, and were given an extensive list of the many nations present, each of which, this is so cool, each of which is now hearing the gospel preached in his or her own language for the very first time. Now, some marvel at this. Some marvel, actually, Everyone pretty much marvels that these plain Galileans could speak fluently the many languages that were present. Some, of course, mock and they explain it away. They don't want to be, they don't want to be, they don't have to deal with this uncomfortable new thing that's in front of them. So they mock. And in their mocking, they try to explain it away by saying that these disciples, they're just drunk. Never mind the fact that it's 9 a.m. They say they're just drunk on new wine. So Peter rises up and he gives his first real sermon, preaching the good news that God has come to dwell among us and made his son Jesus both Lord and Christ. The multitudes that are there, that hear it, they are convicted. Their hearts are convicted. And we're told that 3,000 souls were converted that day alone, on that sermon alone. That is what happens when the Spirit comes. Now, this is familiar ground to many of us. We've, we've heard this story many, many times. And there is a temptation, though, to fall into a modern-day trap that can be hard to see. It can be hard to see because, just like a fish can't really tell that it's in water, we can't really tell sometimes these cultural things that affect us, these cultural maladies. And the one I'm referring to now is one that might seem fairly subtle, but it's falling into the modern day trap of thinking atomistically instead of thinking holistically. So to the modern man, everything can be reduced to atoms or at least to the simplest of its parts. We say, for example, that you're sick. You're sick because um, a tiny little itty bitty virus has infected you, and that's what's made you sick. We say you're healthy because these tiny little building blocks called vitamins and minerals, well, they're in sufficient quantities to keep you healthy. And so the thing that's making you sick and the thing that's keeping you healthy and all kinds of other things are these little tiny little parts and blocks and building blocks. Anything we think worth understanding, the thinking goes at least, um, is worth understanding in its parts. So we think that if we can just understand the part, we can really get to the heart of the matter. But the Bible isn't like this at all. The Bible is one story. It is one arcing narrative of God choosing a people for himself and then setting out to bless them, feed them, correct them, discipline them, 
and ultimately save them. So when we read this account of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, we might be tempted to think that this is the beginning of the Spirit's work, but it's not. The Spirit has been at work throughout all of history and seems to always show up during periods of creation, recreation, and change. This period in Acts chapter 2 is a new creation. Jesus has ascended. The Spirit has come and Everything is being made new. Hearts are being made new. We are now being reborn, born again of the Spirit. But this isn't just found in the New Testament. In the beginning, like in the beginning, beginning, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And then God speaks and the world is formed. The Spirit comes upon men in the Old Testament, and their, their fearful hearts are strengthened, and they no longer walk in disobedience, but in obedience. Ezekiel 36, 26 promises the fulfillment found in Pentecost when Ezekiel prophesies this. And he, this is what he says. He says, quote, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So the Spirit comes and takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Now, this same Spirit that descended on believers in Acts 2 was present at the crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, we're told that it was the Spirit that pushed back the waters. The same Spirit came over Samson on multiple occasions oftentimes with catastrophic results for the enemies of God. I've heard it said that Samson was the most spiritual man in the Old Testament because the Spirit is constantly falling on him, and he's reforming, destroying, and recreating worlds. David begged God not to take his Holy Spirit from him in Psalm 51, and God didn't. God didn't take his Holy Spirit from him. It was the same Spirit, then as is now, as is now coming in the book of Acts. And it was the same Spirit that we're told about in Numbers chapter 11. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the, of the episode here, I talked about this great vision of hope that Moses had. So we're going to talk about that now because that's part of our lectionary reading from Numbers chapter 11. So in Numbers chapter 11, we read yet again, about the unfaithfulness of Israel. They are moaning and groaning and complaining about the food. They say they want meat and they're willing to be slaves again to get it. Never mind the fact that they've been struck down many times by God in his anger for this exact sin. So, not surprisingly, God is angry with the people. Moses is fed up too, and he shows us the proper way to bring your complaints or your petition to the Lord. He pours out his heart before him, and he says something. This is a little bit of a longish quote. Uh, the Moses said to the Lord, quote, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nurse and child, to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this, these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this, the people, alone. The burden is too heavy for me. 
If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So pretty heavy stuff. But God replies to him. God understands where Moses is coming from. And this is the response that God gives him. The Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, speaking to Moses, that is on you, and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Close quote. God later also promises Moses that because the people are feeling so sorry for themselves, uh, they're so sorry, in fact, that they're wishing they were still slaves in Egypt, um, that he would actually give them what they asked for in abundance until it actually became loathsome to them. Uh, it, you should read the whole narrative yourself, but he actually says, I'm going to give you meat not for five days, not for 10 days, not for 20 days, but for an entire month until it actually comes out your nose. So Moses asks the next question, which seems pretty reasonable. Uh, he says, basically, where are we going to get all of this meat? Uh, this is almost the exact question the disciples ask Jesus when they are in the wilderness with the multitudes. Uh, so to this very, quote-unquote, reasonable question, Yahweh responds with what I can only assume to be incredulity. He says this, he says, quote, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Close quote. We are reminded that nothing is too much for the Lord, and we should never question how he will do something, but instead trust him to accomplish his work. Okay, so Moses gathers all the 70 men outside of the camp. They leave the camp, and just as the Lord commanded, they the Lord shows up. The Lord came down, it says, quote, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, spoke to Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it, close quote. The Spirit has now been shared amongst the elders of Israel, and they are prophesying. But here's something interesting. There were two in particular that were still in the camp when all of this was going on. But even though they were in the camp, they still received the Spirit as well, and they began prophesying while they were in the camp. Well, this news gets back to Joshua, and he's jealous for Moses because to prophesy in the camp is an honor that Joshua feels like should be reserved for Moses. So Joshua is showing some incredible team loyalty here. He's, he's on team Moses. He's saying, hey, that's only allowed for Moses to do. And he comes back and he says, Moses, you need to put a stop to this. And Moses makes an astonishing reply. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Let me read that again. He says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This is an amazing display of humility. It's not surprising that we are told in the following chapter of Numbers that, quote, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. 
how do you like that on your resume? Although, of course, if that was if that was who you were, you would never put that on your resume. But that's a pretty amazing thing. He's a very humble man, and this is truly the kind of humility that seeks the good of others over one's ex- exaltation. So to prophesy uh, it was uh, this great honor, and Joshua was jealous for him, and Moses says, no, I wish that all all of the God's people, all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. So Moses desired to see the day when all the people of God would be prophets, speaking God's truth in love. Well, with the coming of the spirit on Pentecost, what was once a dream of the most humble man in all the earth is now a reality. As the people of Christ, we are now prophets, not not the prophets like predicting the future or wearing camel hair prophets, but but faithful followers of Christ who are ready to give truth to a waiting world, a reason for the hope that is in us. Pentecost is a big deal. It's the seventh day of the seventh week from the day of resurrection, and it's a really, really big deal. This may seem hard to believe, Because we live in an age that has been completely secularized, and the few remaining holidays we do celebrate are understood mainly within the confines of their commercial and pop culture influences. So when we look at the historical significance of Pentecost, we need to remember that we don't celebrate holidays very well. And it really hasn't always been this way. Pentecost is a holiday that once held immense sway in our culture and political structure. Up to the 1970s, it was still a national holiday for the United Kingdom. It wasn't always historically referred to as Pentecost, uh, but oftentimes it was more commonly referred to as Whitsun, which is a contraction of the words white and Sunday, a reference to the color white being prominent during liturgical usage during Pentecost Sunday. So from this came a, a national holiday, which came the day after Pentecost Sunday, which was Whit Monday. Uh, it was an entire week of celebrations, Whit Tide, which had parades by different churches called Whit Walks, uh, accompanied by brass bands and girls wearing wet, white dresses. Uh, there was Whit Fairs and different week-long celebrations. Um, and these were common um, when our people had a common culture that wasn't steeped in a secularized worldview. Uh, In other countries, such as Italy, some of the historical practices would be, uh, it would be common to throw red rose petals from the church steeples. This was to symbolize the fiery tongues that fell on the heads of believers. Uh, In France, during the worship service, a lot of times they they would use tremendous blasts on trumpets to remind people of the the sound from heaven as if a, uh, as of a rushing mighty wind, which actually filled the house. That's verbatim from Acts 2. And also common within the historical view of this holiday is that some have used the time uh, between Ascension Day and Pentecost, basically the nine days in between, they've used that time for fasting and prayer, much in what could be speculated was the action of the apostles during those nine days before the Holy Spirit was given. Think about the apostles. Jesus has just left. Yes, he's resurrected from the dead, and so we are living in a world where dead men rise again. 
but he's also now been taken from them, and they're supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they do that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if during that time of waiting, there was also much fasting and prayer. One of the things, though, that I think would be a key historical takeaway as you think about the day of Pentecost, and really the entire liturgical calendar as a whole, is this. We as a people used to have these days as a blessing in structuring our lives. When I say we as a people, I mean I mean everyone, not just our Christian brothers and sisters, but everyone that comprised our county, our state, or our nation. Whether you were a Christian or not, it really didn't matter. The holidays came and the people as a whole observed them. Holidays are didactic by nature. That means they, they're, they're teaching. Didactic means to teach. They are meant to teach the observer something. That's what holidays are for. They show what we care about and what we emphasize. Christmas, of course, teaches us that we were lost in the darkness of sin until the light of the world descended. Epiphany, we learned, teaches us that Christ has come to save all the world, not just the Jews. Easter teaches us that while we are dead in our sins, Jesus has conquered death and offers us life abundantly. I could go on, but, but you get the point. Holidays are meant to teach, impress, and shape cultures. This is no different today. What a nation feels is worth celebrating and emphasizing describes well the priorities of that nation. As Americans, we have fallen far from the blessing of the church calendar. The holidays we celebrate are either completely secular, think, you know, President's Day, the 4th of July, Veterans Day, or they celebrate secular ideals and morals devoid of Christ as King. These would be days like Memorial Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Labor Day. As I said before, the few remaining holidays that we have um, that, that are still on the church calendar, these oftentimes have been sanitized and stripped of their potency. Um, so in America, you think about the Easter Bunny for, for e the Easter Bunny on Easter, Santa Claus during Christmas, you know, so it's still, it's technically a church calendar, but the way we celebrate it, it's been sanitized and stripped of its potency. When our culture was shaped by the liturgical calendar, common grace allowed that non-Christians could benefit from the celebrations and observances that were meant to teach, spread, and live out the gospel. That was the beauty of the church calendar. That was why it brought life, or at least it had the, the ability to, to bring life. Non-believers uh, could ignore the church calendar. They could ignore them. Um, they could join the holidays, um, or they could even be blessed by them. But these holidays were teaching and calling out the celebrant to an explicit Christ-centered righteousness. There was no worry about making the message relevant to heathens. The heathens were expected to make themselves relevant to God by responding in repentance to the call of the gospel poured forth from the church every day, including those church calendar holidays. So, so in other words, the church calendar holidays existed. They were celebrated by Christians, but in Christian nations, of course, not everybody is a Christian, and so the non-Christians could take part, or they could ignore them, they could join them, or they could be blessed by them, 
but they could receive the gospel message in them. That was the point of them. If the church calendar holidays weren't doing that, then they weren't really worth anything. But these church calendar days were explicitly Christian. They, they weren't watered-down versions of some form of Christianity to make it more accessible to the heathens. There was no emphasis about making the message of the holiday relevant to heathens. The heathens were expected to make themselves relevant to God by responding in repentance to the call of the gospel, poured forth from the church every day, as well as including the church calendar holidays. As a nation, and often within the church as well now, um, as a nation, we preach a Christless righteousness through our holiday observances. We endlessly moralize the holidays and make them entirely humanistic and man-centered. This is profoundly wrong, and our celebration should prioritize getting the focus off of ourselves, but instead what we do with our celebrations and with what our secular society chooses to emphasize, we put the focus on us, and we are at the center of this. C.S. Lewis noted a phenomenon in his day as it regarded preaching the gospel to heathens. His observations have been so common that I believe we are amazed to see anything to the contrary. This is what this is a slightly edited quote that uh, that C.S. Lewis said. He says, quote, "The greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin." The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that the man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Close quote. That again was C.S. Lewis, and obviously in that last part, he was being very tongue-in-cheek. So the modern man makes holidays for himself that are self-serving and full of the pride of life. Part of the role of the church is to continue to preach the reality that God is the judge and man is in the dock. Man is on trial. Without this knowledge, man will perish in his blindness and vainglory. He will continue to reject days of celebration that honor anyone but himself and replace those holidays with celebrations more relevant to his own designs. Each episode of the Anno Domini podcast, I highlight a hymn or a psalm of some sort. Often these are ancient hymns and other times they're fairly new. This episode for Pentecost has a hymn that was written 586 years ago by Bianco da Siena. The hymn is called, Come Down, O Love Divine. I've set it to new music, 
but my favorite arrangement is still the tune Down Anthony, written by Ralph Vaughn Williams in 1906. It's absolutely beautiful. It's gorgeous. I'll have both versions linked up in the show notes so that you can hear the you can hear my new version, and you can also compare it to the far superior Williams tune as it is sung by King's College. This hymn is a Pentecost hymn and basks entirely in the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I will read the stanzas and then briefly comment on them at the end. Come down, O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear, and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. O let it freely burn, till worldly passions turn to dust and ashes in its heat consuming. And let thy glorious light shine ever on my sight, and clothe me round the while my path illuming. Let holy charity mine outward vesture be, and lowliness become mine inner clothing. True lowliness of heart, which takes the humbler part, in o'er its own shortcomings, weeps with loathing. And so the yearning strong with which the soul will long shall far outpass the power of human telling. No soul can guess the grace till he become the place wherein the Holy Spirit makes his dwelling. The first stanza asks the Holy Spirit here called Love Divine, to come and find our souls and to visit it with the ardor, which is a great word and seems to mean passions and warmth, almost like enthusiasm. We ask that the ardor of the Spirit would come. We then sing asking the Comforter, another name for the Spirit, to draw near to us, to fill our heart and kindle a fire of holy flame. All this is very challenging for me. Jesus is a physical king in a physical place. He had to go away, and he told us that only in his leaving would we receive the Spirit and a new heart. He then sent his spiritual presence, the Holy Spirit of Christ, which is meant to stir our hearts in our zeal for the Lord Jesus, just as Christ was filled with zeal for the house of God. That's very challenging because we're dealing with, Jesus was physical, and we trust in Jesus, and Jesus is our advocate and our high priest, and he makes intercession for us. But he does that from a physical different location than here. Jesus, when we talk about Jesus being with us, we're talking about the Spirit, because Jesus is not, has not returned yet. He will return again, but his presence is here through the Spirit. And that's challenging. That's that's hard because I want physical things. You know, I want to walk by sight, not by faith. And I'm told to walk by faith and not by sight. Okay, stanza two. Having asked the Spirit at the end of the first stanza to kindle a fire in our hearts, we then ask that the flames would freely burn and that the ardor of this presence would consume our worldly passions, turning them to dust and ash. We ask that the Spirit's glorious light would fill our eyes and surround us while still being a light to our path. 
To put it succinctly, stanza two expresses a desire for the Spirit to cleanse us and guide us in the paths of life. So while stanza number one and two are somewhat ethereal and open to various practical interpretations, stanza three is crystal clear with imperatives. In stanza three, we ask that the Holy Spirit would clothe clothe us in love with the hymn using the word, uh, the much more ancient word, charity. Charity is not really an ancient word, but to use charity as love is a little bit different. So if love is what we put on, we are also asking that lowliness or humility would be the clothes that we wear on the inside. So we, we want love to be in our actions, and we want lowliness to be in our hearts. In, in other words, we're asking the Holy Spirit to give us hearts that are dressed in humility. That is convicting, uh, but just you wait. It gets better. The hymn continues that if you truly want to be lowly in heart, you ought to be weeping over your own shortcomings. In other words, be tough on yourself and be gracious to others. Give your own heart and your own intentions no quarter at all, but believe the best in the intentions of others. The hymn even uses the phrase to loathe our shortcomings. That is some serious cleansing stuff to hate the sin that is in your own heart. And that can only happen, that, torp, that type of loathing over your own sin can only happen when the Spirit is at work in your heart. Stanza 4 ends in hope. Uh, for those that belong to Christ, our hearts long to be the dwelling place of the Spirit. While we don't have the words to describe the yearning and longing of our hearts for the Spirit, um, or for the Spirit to fill us, even if we did, we couldn't even guess the blessings that would be received, that will be received, when we become the willing temple to the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost comes and fills us with the renewal and the regeneration of the Spirit, that is when our lives are changed forever. And that is why Pentecost is likely the most important holiday on the church calendar, because it is the time that we are given God in our own hearts. And with that, I will play the song, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we will be back next week for Trinity Sunday, and then there will be a long break as we enter into ordinary time. Ordinary time, if you remember, uh, just simply counts the days after Pentecost, and the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, all the way until we get to All Saints Day, and then we are really, really, really close to starting the whole cyclical life of the church calendar year over again. So with that, I'll play the hymn. Have a blessed Pentecost Sunday, everyone, and enjoy this new setting of the ancient hymn, Come Down, O Love Divine. Turn.
Soul of 